Hi, my name is Fiona Zeiger. I am Amanda Linkhaver. And I'm Julian Schaap. You are listening to the, the Migration Podcast. Culture and Inequality Podcast. Podcast. Yes, you heard correctly. You get two for one in this crossover podcast series. Migration, culture and inequality are closely entangled and these entanglements are exactly what we are going to speak about in these three episodes. We will focus on three topics, sports, music and media. The link between sports, music and media with culture seems evident. But what do they have to do with inequality or with migration? Usually we associate topics like work, the housing market, conviviality in the city, family life, education, or more recently, health, with issues of inequality, mobility, and migration. In part, this is because these topics get greater attention in public debates. But what about the things that surround us in everyday life, that we take for granted so much that they have become invisible to us? What about cultural practices such as music, sports, and media? This is exactly what we're going to explore in the following three episodes. Stay tuned. In this episode, we discuss the linkages between media and migration. Migration has been a characteristic of societies for centuries. Humans have always migrated to either escape harsh lives, search for better ones, or both. Continuing immigration flows and increasing diversity in many societies have led to more complex processes of belonging and integration, as well as the emergence of cross-border engagements of migrants, organizations, and institutions. In this episode, we focus on the role played by media and communication in a different aspects of migration, ranging from media representations of migrants to the mediated communication exchanges conducted in digital spaces, from interactions between relevant stakeholders in the different levels of migration governance, through the political and economic side of migrants' lives, to the role played by hands-on intercultural communication and digital solidarity projects. To talk about these topics, I have invited Miria Georgiou, Professor in Communication in the Department of Media and Communications at London School of Economics, and Dr. Irvin Cabalquinto, a lecturer in communication at the School of Communication and Creative Arts at Deakin University. Both are experts on the topic of media migration, interesting, thoughtful, and inspiring scholars whose research teaching and practice are very relevant for today's conversation. Welcome, Miriam Irvin. Miriam, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hello, Amanda. Hello, everyone. Uh, and hello, Irvin, of course. Uh, what a great company to have this conversation with. Um, so my name is Miria Georgiou. As Amanda introduced me already, I'm a, a professor in media and communications at the LSE. And my areas of interest are migration and urbanization in the context of intense mediation. So I'm particularly interested on how uh, the different actors of migration um, engage with media and communications, both in producing message, uh, uh, messages, uh, uh, consuming messages, but also uh, using technologies, communication technologies, uh, to link uh, with each other, but also to control the processes of migration, as we will see in a minute. Thank you, Miria. Irving, could you please also talk about your research? Hi, Amanda, Miria, and everyone. So thank you for having me to today's um, podcast. 
So I'm basically a lecturer in communication, as mentioned by Amanda, and uh, my research focuses on the intersections of digital media, mobilities, and migration. I've always been interested in looking at the ways digital media communication technologies are shaping transnational lives, particularly in my own journey as a migrant from the Philippines, moving to another country and moving to Australia to do my PhD. I've sort of like embodied this kind of movement, but at the same time, this virtual connection facilitating my sense of home with my family members um, back home and across the world. So I'm very interested in really unpacking the notion of home in the digital age, wherein the home is a very intimate, domestic space, but also it could be a context wherein we can understand the digital inequalities emerging in our society. And my name is Amanda Linkar. I'm an associate professor uh, of media migration at Erasmus University. I'm, I've been interested in researching the connections between media, technologies, and migration, specifically forced migration, um, and diverse settings to understand how technologies are shaping migratory movements, but also the placemaking experiences of refugees. And today I'm uh, very thrilled to be in great company with Miriam Irvin to talk about the role that digital technologies play in migration. This is particularly relevant in a moment where technological transformations shaped by artificial intelligence, machine learning, but also digital connectivity are increasingly influencing human mobility. The so-called European refugee crisis in 2015 and beyond, generated by displacement from the war in Syria, spurred the rapid development of digital initiatives, as we know, including hackathons, tech company-supported apps and platforms, developed by mostly activists, aid organizations, and private actors to assist refugees through digital access. Considering different regions affected by conflict-induced or forced migration in general, mobile technology can be a crucial tool for the millions of people who are internally displaced or have fled their country. So taking this as a starting point for our conversation, I would like to ask you, Irvin, uh, how do you think media is affecting contemporary migratory movements? I think in my own research, particularly, I look at the ways transnational Filipino families um, use digital communication technologies to forge and maintain ties at a distance. So I'm really looking at how these modern technologies would be facilitating that sense of family life for these um, dispersed family members. But more specifically, looking at how these practices with these digital technologies could be shaping a sense of home. So a sense of home in this regard is a context to actually understand the impacts of the materiality of um, digital technologies, but also allowing that space for us to converse with the digitality. Digitality refers to the experiences with digital media use among this cohort of individuals. And for my research, I actually unpacked this notion of the integral role of digital communication technologies in shaping a sense of, for example, family rituals. I know we celebrate Christmas, New Year, birthdays, you know, but for migrants and their dispersed family members, these ritualistic practices are now transverse and extended in the digital space. What is interesting about 
these practices, it's allowing it to perform the gendered and familial roles. For example, the mother can actually prepare a dish and present that through Skype. And also the children celebrating through presenting gifts that can be sent physically, but also virtually and saying on Skype that, hey mom, you know, I actually have this gift. But it's also facilitating that sense of fatherhood perhaps in the sense that the father will be um, sending remittances to the family back home. So these are practices in our everyday lives of the migrants and their dispersed family members enacted through technologies contributing to a sense of co-presence. So co-presence in here is no longer a kind of like physical connection um, between these individuals, not only in a physical space or place, but rather it's actually performative in the digital environment. And it's interesting because these um, performances are also shaped by, which I'll be arguing, shaped by social cultural um, factors. Even though they're actually dispersed across different countries, they're still performing that culture. For example, in Filipino culture, that filial piety could be performed in that, you know, delivering messages um, on a regular basis or sending gifts or sending um, even like memes, if you like, the kind of like affective, you know, experiences developed through this, what we call playful and creative content. So it's facilitating co-presence. But I would argue that media would be facilitating that sense of proximity. That's given right. But I also want to challenge that, as scholars would be arguing, that media technologies would be also developing or triggering a sense of distance. Our viewers might be asking, Irvin, what do you mean by distance? Distance in this regard could be facilitated by, for example, the collapse of technologies in a time of crisis. And we've experienced this not only, for example, the context of the Philippines, where it's always a um, typhoon. Imagine in the Philippines, 20 typhoons every year. And I was talking to my participants how that kind of like environment would be undermining you know, the sense of co-presence, um, ritualistic practices. So it is creating a sense of distance because when you couldn't contact your loved one at a time of crisis, you panic and you can really feel that you're very away from your family members. And we actually saw that during the pandemic with all of these cross-border shutdowns, travel restrictions, family members are performing this sense of family time through, you know, Zoom, through messaging applications. But at the same time, there was this kind of like anxiety or tensions created in that environment because we tend to overlook that there are, which I would be arguing, asymmetries in that digital environment. So there's this materiality that's provided to us to allow us to connect with this infrastructural environment, but at the same time, the infrastructure can collapse and would be triggering that sense of tension in that space. That's why I was like actually thinking that this is a very paradoxical space, you know? <laughs> we might be sensing like, okay, I actually feel connected, but I sometimes want to disconnect. And this disconnection could be forced and can also be uh, involuntary in such environments. Absolutely, especially because you take for granted that technologies are, uh, you know, uh, an integrated aspect of our everyday lives and that people experience or people in migration have the same kinds of experiences, especially as you mentioned in times of crisis, the different um, you know, forced migration displacements that are happening around the world. And now currently with the displacement generated by the war in Ukraine, and I would like to, to turn to Miria uh, recently, you have been uh, to the Poland-Ukraine borders in a fieldwork visit, and uh, I followed you on, on different social media platforms, and I've also um, I have read some of the insights that you shared with us about uh, your, uh, your recent fieldwork trip. So, Mira, could you perhaps tell us 
what you have seen um, so far in terms of how the media are shaping the situation in the places you have visited? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Amanda. And I want to uh, take this question in relation to my recent fieldwork, as you said, uh, at uh, the Ukraine and Polish border. I was recently at the Polish-Ukrainian border and I have conducted research with the different actors of migration there. So what we have seen is a very different, uh, a very complex uh, architecture, uh, communication architecture of the border that involves different actors, the state, non-governmental uh, actors, including humanitarians, activists and volunteers. And we have, of course, migrants, the people who are moving. The two main things that uh, you can see in the context of, uh, of war is that there is an intense production of stories about what the war is, who are the people to deserve to be spoken about, but often there's, um, uh, in that storytelling we forget who are the actors who can themselves speak about the story of the war and uprooting. So we all see many, many stories about uh, Ukrainian refugees in the media. And the stories that we see in the media very often are very, um, uh, very unified and very singular, if you like. So very often we are invited to think of Ukrainian refugees only as victims. And uh, we are expected to relate uh, with them only as victims. But of course, when you start talking to refugees themselves, when you see how they use their own uh, media, how they use social media, and how they speak about their own uprooting, the story of migration becomes more complex. So the people who move, uh, and in this case, Ukrainian refugees, of course experience trauma and of course experience violent uprooting, but they are not fully determined through uh, victimhood. And we have to remember that migrants are also agents of change. So the process of migration itself is an active process. It's not only something that is imposed to people, but it is a process that uh, uh, people, uh, by uh, engaging in transnational national uh, mobility, they're trying to use their agency and capabilities to survive, but also to build a better life. So we see stories of the media and the stories of the actual uh, migrants not necessarily meeting. Then the other thing that we see, of course, is the different uses of communication technologies and social media. So we have a very strong, in the case of the Ukrainian and Polish border, we have a, 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 the use of communication technologies clearly to control mobility. So this, uh, the Polish, uh, the Polish um, state, representing also the European Union, is imposing very strong controls to the mobility uh, of migrants. So using databases, uh, using uh, um, drone technologies and other technologies of border, uh, very closely monitors who crosses the border and who has the right to cross. And often this means that some migrants are allowed to cross and others are fully banned from doing so. And this is the case with uh, non-white uh, non migrants, non-white uh, uh, asylum seekers and refugees who are trying to get into Poland at the same time that uh, Ukrainian refugees are entering the country. So we have technologies of bordering who are also dividing migrants, dividing them on the basis of race and a selective right to recognition and respect.
And the last thing that uh, I would like to say here is that we see social media playing a very peculiar and very uh, interesting role in how we understand a wartime situation and how we understand migration in a wartime situation. So what we see is that social media both reveal and hide stories of migration. So um, a lot of what we know apart from the stories that we see in mainstream media, a lot of what we know about what is happening uh, uh, with uh, Ukrainian mig uh, migrants comes from social media, and especially initiatives that take place um, uh, to support um, uh, Ukrainian uh, migrants by volunteers and activists in Western Europe. So we see a, a revelation of certain kind of patterns of solidarity, or we might even say Western benevolence, a Western benevolence where we see the West opening its heart and uh, offering uh, its support to, uh, to Ukrainian uh, refugees. But what is hidden is also the different layers of where this solidarity and support comes from. And doing fieldwork in the border, we've seen the paradoxes of the volunteers actually supporting Ukrainians, but the same kind of volunteers not, um, not respecting migrants and showing suspicion towards Ukrainian refugees. And this comes, of course, within the specific spatial and temporal context of the conflict, where Ukrainian uh, and, and Poland have historical moments of animosity in their past that uh, explain how uh, um, uh, Polish people might to an extent relate to Ukrainians. So the stories we see on social media are only uh, revealing this uh, benevolent welcome of the West. But the story that we see actually when we talk to actors of, uh, of the border and different actors of migration is much more complex. So on the one hand, Miria, we've seen based on your account is that um, on the one hand, we have technologies of solidarities, technologies, um, uh, I would say, of migrant agencies. So migrants are actually uh, appropriating and using these technologies to tell their stories, to reveal uh, more complex accounts of how they experience uh, these movements or these situations, in particular in a case of... Uh, of Ukrainian migrants right now, but also we've seen that in other contexts, and particularly also uh, uh, in relation to what Irving was mentioning to us, the notion of digitality, which refers right to the experience of uh, Filipino migrants uh, using experiencing technologies to communicate, uh, basically to build um, a family life from afar. But on the other hand, we have uh, technologies of control, of surveillance, that of course undermine the rights, the agency and voices of migrants. And it's precisely on uh, taking this more bottom-up perspectives, I would like to, to perhaps bring a reflection here on the idea of exceptionalism, uh, the exceptional uses uh, of technologies that mainstream media, of course, also help construct regarding um, the, the access and, um, and the uses that precarious migrants, including refugees, asylum seekers, undocumented migrants, have um, the access they have to technology. So this kind of uh, exceptional or exceptionalism idea surrounding technology use contributes to reinforcing 
these uh, simplistic but also essentialist views, right, um, of uh, of migrant populations, and and of course this also leads to the process of ordering. Um, so I would like to to ask you both: Where do you see the overlap between people's general experiences with media and their, I would say, unique? in quotation marks, unique uses of media when experiencing migration? Where do we see overlaps in that process? I think, Amanda, you're raising a very important point. So um, uh, we see that, um, unfortunately, not only in the media context, but also in the context of academic research, that when you do research on migration and, and, and when you do research with refugees, uh, somehow um, there is an assumption that you are doing research with an exceptional and completely different from any other kind of population kind of group. Of course, those of us who do research with migration, and uh, just as a, remind, a reminder that the three of us are also migrants, we know that migrants are not some creatures out there. Migrants are people with complex identities and complex histories and biographies that, uh, of course, they share uh, similarities or they have differences with different, um, uh, with different social groups. So um, I have been recently doing research with, um, with refugee teenagers, actually, across uh, uh, two countries, uh, two cities in Athens and London. And doing research with, uh, with teenagers, I think it's a great reminder, again, of how we have to move away from this conception of the migrant condition and the context of migration and, uh, and communication technologies as something different uh, to any other social phenomenon. Of course, when you talk to teenagers, you're reminded that these are people that uh, more intensely than other groups, definitely more intensely than I do, uh, live their lives very much through social media and through their uh, constant and regular use of communication technologies. So the one striking but in many ways obvious reminder when I have been talking with these young people is that what they want to do more than anything is being young people. So the way that they perform themselves on social media in many ways is not that different to the ways that other young people do. They're talking about how they want to fall in love. They want to talk about uh, how uh, uh, they want to make friendships. They want to present themselves as fashionable subjects, right? Like many other young people of their age. So uh, that was, again, for me, an obvious yet a striking reminder that when we talk about, um, about migrants, we're talking about uh, people who are located within social systems that, uh, to which they relate in relation to their age identity, class identity, gender, sexuality, like everyone else. Now, where is the difference? These young people, like all migrants, want to have a life, a normal life, where they're recognized, respected, and where they can sustain their identities, like everyone else. The difference lies to the fact that many of, the, of migrants are denied those rights. So they're denied these rights symbolically when they're represented as something fundamentally and essentially different to other people. And they're denied, of course, um, uh, these rights structurally when very often they are denied the right to mobility, to rights and recognition. 
So what we uh, what I saw in this specific case with teenage ref uh, refugees, but in my research more generally uh, with uh, migrants and their own use of media and communication technologies, is that one they have to try to build that normal identity that has to do with being a human being within these extremely restricted conditions. And two, they uh, have to construct these identities in relation to um, something distinct that they experience that perhaps not all populations experience, which is one of the transnational connections. And I'm sure Irving will talk more about that. The fact that migrants also live across spaces, either by choice or because they are forced, it means that they are trying to seek and find a sense of stability, a sense of self, an identity by connecting with different places and different people across boundaries. And this, of course, is both an opportunity to build identity Entity, but also sometimes it's a burden. It's a burden because you have responsibilities to different communities and also you are surveyed by different communities, right? Not only the ones close by, but perhaps your parents, your brothers, your, um, uh, your grandparents who are somewhere else. And I'll leave it here because I'm sure Irvin has more to say about that. Thank you, Miriam. Yeah, actually, um, I was struck when you were talking about this representation by the media in terms of like, you know, people moving around or being controlled in certain spaces. Because I actually did the research on how uh, mobile applications, particularly for migrants um, sending remittances and consumer goods um, from Australia or across the world to the Philippines. And when I look at the strategies of these platforms, the representations of Filipino migrants would be representing this very submissive, loving, caring migrant who would be giving everything everything you know that they work hard for in the foreign country and send everything it is interesting because i mean like, these narratives are very emotive and capturing that moment of family life at a distance where in in order to create that co-presence you need to actually send all of these remittances, all of these consumer goods. But it's also a political representation, which Miriam was talking about earlier, but this is in the context of transnational family life, where in the politics in this case would be questioning, like, these representations are actually rooted to the logics of capitalism and even post-colonialism. In the first part of capitalism, we're thinking about this notion that the more people will be practicing this sending of remittances, the more profit for the company, because you need to actually pay money in order to send that money or consumer goods. And at the same time, it's post-colonial because of the very fact that um, developing countries are actually reliant on Western countries, and this reliance will be facilitated by this kind of like consumption of goods overseas and then sending that kind of like goods um, elsewhere back home. But it's also related to Miri was talking about in relation to identity formation. So this um, sending of, for example, a branded clothes or for example, you know, um, even yummy or canned goods or something like that. It's symbolizing the status of the migrant overseas, which could be a disconnect from the actual live condition because of that precarity that's being hidden, um, not performed through the media, but performed in a way through that sending of consumer goods as a way that I'm actually living okay, but not really okay. So there's always that negotiation in that particular um, environment. So for me, when I look at these media representations, it's inclusive because of the very fact of the logics of capitalism. We want people to do these practices because we want their money to be channeled into that space of profit making. And it's also interesting because when I look at these practices, I always center in questioning transnational practices as always informed by culture. The social-cultural context is very important to understand these practices. Like even though we have, for example, um, 
Filipina mothers or Filipino fathers living overseas. They're quite away, but they're still performing that um, notion of motherhood in the context of the Philippines. That's why a lot of studies were looking at or even suggesting or highlighting that mothers in the Philippines would be moving away from their families but staying connected virtually would be performing the motherly role by constantly calling, you know, sending goods, um, sending um, all of these um, affective messages on a daily basis. But because the structure of the family doesn't actually um, accept the fact that the mother is moving away and living away and performing that care at a distance, the mother is then pressured to also perform that kind of like um, not only the caring role, but because the father wasn't working in the Philippines, she has to do the work and then she has to send all of this financial support for the family back home. So it's a form of a wireless leash as scholars would be arguing, but in a transnational context. Because this culture can be suffocating, but can also be empowering because it's supporting that affective connections facilitated through digital technologies. But this affective scenarios could be appropriated by media platforms to facilitate profit-making in the logics of virtual connectivity, but also appropriated by family members to sustain connections. But there's always that tension um, underlying in that such environment. Because mothers might feel like ambivalent, as Madina would be arguing in her work, which I also discover in my own work, that mothers felt like they're performing care at a distance, but it's not enough. Because family members are still expecting back in the Philippines for you to be present physically and performing that role. And despite the sending of money and constant calling, there's always this tension that it's not that acceptable or a norm in that environment. Yeah. And considering the overlaps and similarities regarding digital media uses among migrants, we can take, for instance, the context of the pandemic to highlight uh, the fact that migrants have always had to experience family relations and connections from afar and having to use technologies for uh, for being able to communicate with with families. So irrespective of uh, whether you experience a condition of migration or not, you needed to use uh, digital media to be able to uh, to stay in touch with your families. So I think this is a very important point to to highlight when considering the the, the overlaps regarding digital media uses among this population group. But also in connection with what Miria said about her research on digital, uh, on, on migrant youth and their uses of technologies, their aspirations to become well-connected individuals has uh, have a lot more to do with identity aspirations of uh, that are characteristic of their age group. So um, more than being a migrant, they wanted to be uh, well-networked um, young people who have ac access to those digital spaces and negotiate identities and those environments. And then I would like to pick up on a point mentioned by Irvin regarding the role of the context in media migration, which is extremely relevant to understand, of course, how um, issues related to uh, uh, political issues, economic issues, affect uh, the, the role of technologies in, in migrants' lives. So, uh, for example, I'm saying this because uh, if we consider 
the the binary uh, connections or or the binary perspective on the digital divide, for instance, between the global north and south, we can see that uh, in certain regions of global south, connectivity is still a major issue, the baseline of digital access. So I'm saying this because, for example, in my own research with Venezuelan forced migrants in northwestern Brazil, having access to reliable and continuous connectivity is a problem. And this, of course, can limit uh, considerably the agency uh, of these individuals and their digital rights are not recognized. So taking from this, uh, taking this perspective into account, I would like to, to, to ask you or to start a reflection about uh, how the context of migration, in your opinion, play a role in how media affect migrants' lives and whether do you think that there are notable uh, differences in terms of regions and continents? So, for example, taking the, the case of global north and south digital divides. So I'm actually looking at my research in terms of a transnational perspective. So when I refer to transnational perspective, I look at the here and there, but can also be the in-between, the virtual space wherein that um, constant communication would be happening. But in my um, research, I always look at this aspect of the material aspect of digital communication. And we couldn't actually ignore the fact that the differences across countries would be impacting the quality of transnational communication among transnational Filipino family members or in general migrants and their dispersed family members. So I think this is important because when we start looking at the material aspects of technologies, we tend to start think about, for example, concepts of digital divide. We tend to look at digital divide in the context of, for example, local context, where in a particular nation state would be addressing that digital access, issues on competencies, and even the network environment facilitating that connection. But in my research, I look at this digital divide through that kind of like geographical differences. Like, for example, when I was studying the case of the Filipino migrants in Australia, they had the access to technologies. They had a relatively stable internet connection to facilitate, for example, video conferencing and all of these exchanges that would be requiring a big uh, mobile data. But when I was doing my fieldwork in the Philippines, I actually saw the disparity in terms of the digital access. You know what? The family members here, the migrants, they were sending their second-hand iPhone back home so the family members would not be buying an expensive phone, but rather just use the phone and use the internet back home to stay connected through, for example, messaging applications or any other platform. And back home, there was also a kind of like um, um, infrastructures referring to they share it in the household. So this is a strategy wherein you have to be at least um, strategic that you get a plan that can accommodate the needs of the family. But Despite this connection, it was also very evident that, you know, the connection back in the Philippines was the internet was very slow. So instead of video conferencing with the camera on, they had to switch off that camera to accommodate that difference with the mobile data or the internet speed across countries. So I think this is an important point when we start thinking about digital access, because even though we have all of the smartphones that we use, or the messaging applications, the video conferencing tool, but if we do not have the foundational, um, you know, 
connectivity, like the internet, then that's actually disrupting that connection. And it's also interesting that, you know, there's this kind of like always constant negotiation, Amanda, in the digital space, which I think we experienced this also in the pandemic. Like majority of my participants at before the pandemic, when there's a crisis back home, they don't share what they're struggling or experiencing in the home country because they don't want the family members back home to worry for them, which is the same. The family members back home won't tell this migrant in Australia that there's something wrong in the Philippines. But if both sides were really experiencing difficulties that they couldn't handle, that's the time they start you know, disclosing all of this information. There's, so there's a constant negotiation, not only with the infrastructure, but also the emotions involving and shaping those differences. And also in relation to, what, to your point on this um, difference of practices, that's why in my research, I always point out this asymmetrical differential practices because they're shaped not only with culture, but also with age, gender, class, and ethnicity. I mentioned earlier, for example, that aspect of gendered roles would be shaping the practices, even in a transnational context, but also age. It was interesting because the siblings back in the Philippines, they don't include the mother <laughs> in the group chat. So they have that kind of like space where they kind of like converse what's happening. But sometimes they use the group chat as well to surprise the mom, like to create a collage for the mom. So it could be a space for like children hanging around in the living room, a similar to hanging around in the living room, but also translated into the digital space but at the same time the mom even though she's not adept in using the camera phone you know through the smartphone taking photos she'll be collecting information through social media platforms so you are in this network environment but you as Madina would and Miller would be arguing the polymedia environment that's being interplayed in that negotiation of access but also emotional um, conditions uh, following uh, Irving's very important contribution uh, to this part of the discussion, I, I want to also um, touch upon the, the importance of time in us understanding the speciality uh, of unequal access to communication rights. Um, so m most of my research has been taking place in Europe and very often we're assuming that Europe is that space of privilege, of, um, of substantial and sustained connectivity and that uh, most people uh, have access at least to the basics um, of communication rights. However, doing research across time, I have realized and again, or I have been reminded that the geographies uh, of global order are also temporary, uh, temporarily changing. So we have divided geographies of, um, of accessibility that are also taking place within the global north in ways that we see extreme divides now, and perhaps I would argue growing divides that perhaps are similar to the divides we see between parts of the global north and global south. And to explain through two examples what I mean. The first example is, uh, comes through my research uh, with migrants in, um, in the context of Greece, but also in the context of the UK. But in Greece, we see something that we see also in the UK um, um, to a different scale. Structural conditions of exclusion are so deep that significant numbers of people who are seeking security or who are seeking uh, to settle in Europe are being deprived from the most fundamental rights to work, housing, um, uh, health and schooling. 
that they're so deprived that literally they have to choose every day whether they will eat or well, whether they will have access to data. Taking what Ervin says, access to data is extremely important because this uh, data connects people to the people who matter to them, right? So it's very important for identity, for that sense of ontological security, for, uh, for feeling that you belong somewhere. But then the deprivation in Europe now for many migrants is to a level that literally for some populations we see that the choice be is between food or data. The other example that I, I came across recently, repeatedly, and which is striking in relation to questions of communication rights, is how we see a shift between debates about uh, media literacy and illiteracy. And I have seen in a striking way how actually media literacy pushes people to become disconnected just to survive and to explain what I mean. Many of the people I have spoken recently told me that they had to throw their phone in the sea when they were trying to cross into Europe to find security. So people have to throw away their phones. They travel in precarious conditions without any connectivity because they know that the state uses GPS uh, uh, technologies to track them and push them back where they came from and deny to them the right to claim asylum in Europe. So actually media uh, literacy becomes a way uh, both to navigate this world of extreme control and surveillance by the state, but of course at the same time becomes a way where uh, to push people to experience this very dangerous situation where they're crossing the sea and when uh, something goes wrong, they have no way to communicate with anyone. So prolonged digital consumption also means, uh, of course, greater risk of being traced, of having the data traced. And I can uh, also highlight from one of the participants in, in one of, the, of my research back in 2016 that he, he was actually using two, uh, he, he traveled with two smartphone devices. One was constantly disconnected and the other was connected in specific areas that he sort of, um, you know, would, would think that he would not be traced, but of course it was important to have a smartphone connected to see where he was and, and the location. So, Miria, in your upcoming book, Digital Borders, uh, Migration, Technology and Power, co-authored with Lili Kuliaraki, you address the consequences of borders mediated by technologies for the lives of migrants. You have addressed earlier in our conversation the importance of, uh, of understanding the, the role of, of media in migration um, is to actually see how people are um, using and appropriating technologies, but also how technologies are being used to tell the story of migrants or to tell migration stories. Uh, I would like to, uh, to ask if you could explain to us um, uh, how do you define the notion of digital borders in your book? 
Thank you, Amanda. Um, I'm obviously very excited <laughs> to see this book that builds on research over the last uh, decade, really, at different sites uh, of uh, the border and with different actors of migration coming together. So we titled the book The Digital Border uh, because we want to um, invite our readers, of course, along other scholars who do similar work, to think about the border not as a stable territorial point, but as a moving signifier that is becoming more and more mediated. Um, but when we think about the border is mediated, we want to emphasize that the border is mediated in different ways, what we call territorially and what we call symbolically. So we're talking first about the digital border as a territorial border that has been changing with the uh, uh, uses of media communication technologies to not just be a stable territorial point now that separates countries. The border is not just about the checkpoints between territories, but the territorial border has now become an ever-expanding border that connects both the checkpoints, uh, the outer borders with countries, with the in inner border, as we will see it, for example, in cities of Europe. What does that mean? That we see on the outer border of countries, we see the intensification of control and use of databases, transnational databases, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, computational records of migrants, and so on, intensifying the way that mobility of people is controlled and the separation and assorting of those who have the right to move against those who don't. But what we see increasingly is that the same databases and technologies follow migrants as they move and they, as they settle, perpetually follow migrants within the territories of the nation. So when you're a migrant, this data that is collected in the external border more and more is connected with data that is collected throughout your life when you live in a European city, for example. So those databases of the border, external border, are connected with information about work, education, your health, and so on. So migrants more and more within this condition of an extended territorial border uh, constantly have to prove themselves that they do not present a threat to the state. And those technology, uh, technologies of control are there to, uh, to enhance this, uh, uh, this um, uh, uh, migration governance uh, through constant surveillance of migration. But at the same time, as we have the expansion of the territorial border, we have the symbolic border. So the second part of our understanding of the digital border has to do with the symbolic border. And what we mean by the symbolic border is that field of storytelling and representation of migration. So one thing that we want to emphasize is that the border when we talk about uh, the border in the context of media migration, does not have to do only with the infrastructures of control of territories, but it has to do also with the infrastructures of representation. So we are looking at the way that media uh, uh, tell stories about migration, very often tell stories that normalize and legitimize the exclusion of migrants on the basis of race, on the basis of a, 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 a constructed otherness, that these are people who are not like, that, like us and they have to constantly prove their right to have rights, as Aaron says. But of course, the last point that I want to make about the way that we understand the digital border is not just that the digital border is an increasingly mediated system of control, but the border 
symbolically and territorially is also a site of resistance. And I think this is also very important to remember uh, and to keep in mind that migrants have agency, as you said before, um, uh, Amanda, um, um, they're people within the societies that are setting huge restrictions to migration that also develop networks of solidarity. And very often what we see is the development uh, of tactics and practices among migrants, but also among coalitions and networks of solidarity uh, that are built uh, in the context of migration that resist those technologies of control and those representations that fully stereotype and exclude migrants from their right to be members of public spheres and the receiving societies. Irva, in your book, Immobile, Mobile Homes, Family Life at a Distance in the Age of Mobile Media, you consider, of course, the, the digital um, realities of families, of Filipino families separated um, or building, right, transnational family relations from afar, um how would you um how would you then conceptualize the um, the role of media like in more general terms uh, in a process of building family what are mainly the key uh, takeaways of uh, or the key insights of the book in relation to the practices or the negotiations of families um among filipino migrants in in a context of your study Thank you, Amanda. So I think when we start really thinking about um, family life, we really couldn't ignore the fact that to perform family life in the digital age would be so impossible to not have all of these smartphones, social media, messaging applications, and now Zoom, and all of these you know, emerging technologies. And even like the smart home, the Google home, they're part now of the domestic space. But more so, for example, for transnational families, not only for the Filipino transnational families, because this particular case study of transnational Filipino family, they're somehow representing the geographically dispersed family members across the world of migrants and their left behind family members in different parts of the world. But when we start thinking about the space wherein these family members convene, perform intimacy, generate a sense of co-presence, then we start into zooming into the home, not only as a physical space, which I've also conceptualized as a symbolic space. And this symbolic conceptualization of the home is represented through this network and mobile environment that you know, scholars would be arguing you can carry your family through your smartphone because they're there, you know. You can actually move around and speak to them while you're on the move. But at the same time, it's facilitating this hybrid environment, shaping our notion of placemaking. That place can be very mobile now and very portable, as I was mentioning earlier. But more importantly, it's also very paradoxical. That's what I was mentioning earlier, that despite the fact that we can feel the presence of our family members through the phone, through video conferencing, through messaging applications or group chats, we tend to feel that they're not there. They're not there in a the time of crisis. They're not there in a the time of family celebrations. And they're not there to actually give us the sense of comfort or ontological security, which Miriam was mentioning earlier. So there's always that tension when we start looking at the home. And for me, when I conceptualize this, Home, it's not only mobile, but it's also immobile for the fact that there's this broader structure creating that immobility for that condition. And when I was studying this case of the transnational Filipino families, I was referring to this socially historically entrenched government um, system of sending cheap labor or migrants to 
you know, countries across the world. And then this government in the Philippines would be benefiting from the remittances without creating jobs for these migrants. So it's embedded in that country to actually export these bodies in a very precarious and cheap environment, but then not really creating that family reunification that's crucial as well for flourishing a family life. So there's a paradox that they can be immobilized in certain precarious conditions. For example, I was mentioning earlier, despite this push of the government, okay, you can just use digital technologies to connect. But how can we actually connect if we have to spend so much money to access data and we have to buy a smartphone that's quite expensive back home? That's why there's this negotiation of, I'll just send you my secondhand phone or something like that. It's also this affective experience that when there's a typhoon or a crisis in the Philippines, the family members would be asking money from the migrants overseas. But then it's also that asymmetrical economic resources that the migrants would be struggling here and that no option but to actually send back to the Philippines. So it's also, I will be arguing, that neoliberalism is not only reflected on the individual, it's actually reflected in the domestic space. Because once the government feels like it's absolved from its role in providing social welfare, welfare benefits, then you have the family members having the pressure to carry that responsibility. But of course, I would be arguing, as we've been arguing also over the past uh, minutes or hours that we're talking, that we have this notion of agency of migrants. So despite that structural constraints, like, you know, um, unstable internet connection, um, there's this tension when there's a crisis, there's always that um, agency, that what we call the creative practice. You know, instead of, for example, telling you that I'm actually suffering back in the Philippines, let's soften the conversation by, I'll send you a meme, <laughs> or I'll send you a photo of my funny face, or use a sticker to generate that. It's a sense of connection, but it's also a way to navigate that structural constraint. Or for example, as mentioning earlier, let's not use the video when we have to actually Skype during Christmas, because everyone's calling at 12 midnight <laughs> and we couldn't connect so let's just not use that but let's just use a phone call so there's this agency happening in that space but i think it's also giving us an opportunity to, to really reflect on bringing the voices of the migrants and the practices into policy work and this is very crucial for researchers i know we do a lot of research on migrations on transnationalism but it's also a question like how what do we do with this information to advance not only knowledge but also to create programs and policies for the migrants to ensure that really it's a question of what is an inclusive global and digital society that's a question these interactions that you mentioned these more spontaneous interactions they can reveal a lot about how people experience their migratory um, trajectories but also how they negotiate right with the different structures of control, uh, but also of um, digital instability or whatever we call, we can call. And, um, but it's also a very, very relevant point to sort of wrap up our conversation here is uh, precisely where do we go from here? What do we do with the, well, extra, uh, extremely relevant insights that are being produced, right, um, uh, from research, on this area and uh, going back or, or getting back to, to the original question of our episode, uh, what roles do media play uh, in migration or in the process of migration? I would like to, to invite you to just say a brief lines about what about now? What do we do with uh, the, the research insights that we produce 
with migration? How can we influence policymakers? How, how can we actually try to bring social change, but also uh, more social justice to, uh, to, the, to the migrants and also to the, um, yeah, to the experiences of people experiencing displacement and so forth? I think one of the important things that we have to do with our research on media and migration is to bring the human back at the heart of our interrogation. Why am I saying that? Because I think very often uh, research and policy are paying so much attention to technology that in many ways we're outsourcing the responsibility, political responsibilities, ethical responsibilities, human rights responsibilities to technologies. So technologies will save, uh, will save migrants because they are so important that they can help them to survive. Technologies can save the state because they control who has the right to move and who doesn't have the right to move. However, we have to constantly, I think, be reminded that what is at stake here is uh, societies, the constitution of societies and the value that runs societies. So what is a smartphone good? What is a smartphone good for? when people are victims of war, when environmental disasters are pushing people away from their families, from their homelands. What we need to think then is that the question of migration is a question of respecting and defending human rights. And then we can think of how technologies, as we see in our research, can be used um, on the one hand by migrants themselves to create agency, to find a space of representation. And we need, I think, to show through our research that people's voices matter and the different stories they tell matter and um, emphasize that and share this kind of knowledge, not only with our colleagues, but also with different actors in the society. And to think also about how the state use of technologies has to be accountable and has to be accountable in every way that we think that the state has to be accountable to its citizens, to its citizens and its different also infrastructures of control. Why is it okay, for example, to survey um, for the states? Uh, to survey uh, migrants' social media when they are not allowed by most countries' uh, constitution does not allow the state to survey social media use of their citizens. Why is it okay to do that for migrants? So I think we have to keep putting back in the agenda the right of migrants to have rights, as Arendt told us at the end of the Second World War, and that um, technologies can be a source of communication, connection, accountability, and we all have the responsibility as researchers, as citizens, as policymakers, to make sure that technologies and media and communications are used responsibly and according to the rights and responsibilities that we all uh, subscribe to within democratic states. Yeah, so I think um, when we start really thinking about uh, media, communication, and migration, we can always paint a very utopian and positive picture that when we have these technologies, we can actually be connected, feeling a sense of the homeland, feeling a sense of belonging, and just, you know, being connected with each other. It's a very perfect picture or portraiture of what life can be in a digital world. But I think it's important as researchers to bring in that nuanced lens and we bring that nuanced lens in our research by drawing on our data and the insights that we collect 
in the field. And these are empirical findings that can help us provide the foundation for any government, for any institution to really understand not only the practices, but also the politics of practices in those spaces. And when I mean like with these practices, I've been examining the, the cases of transnational Filipino families and using digital technologies and looking at the home as a context to understand those practices and also that sense of exclusion and agency. But now I'm extending that research on inquiring what's happening in the aging migrants' home and understanding the digital practices in sustaining family life with their local and transnational members. And in terms of policy work, like for example in Australia, it's pushing for creating this inclusive society wherein we can use digital technologies, you know, to accessing health care, education, financial services, all of the services, you know, they're accessible by digital technologies. But again, this is a question of imaginaries of who are in position. And there's a blinder in that space that we start to think about. You are imagining the context of technology use for who? For which particular environment? For, for you know, are these kind of like young people? Are these sort of like families? And a question is like, how about those older migrants who probably, you know, been in that country for how many decades now and then trying to navigate the environment, not only a physical environment, but also a digital environment. So in my research, I think of policy interventions by drawing on the insights that we actually see in the field and what do these practices mean in relation to broader policies not only in that country, but also in the geographical differences. Like, for example, we might be thinking of this policy intervention for digital divide in Australia. For example, okay, let's address scamming among older migrants because they're clicking something online and that's, you know, they're falling prey into certain scams. But we tend to think about that it's separation from the home country and relationships actually shape the use of technology. The person or the aging migrant might be using that because she or he trusts the family member back home. And this sense of literacy is actually limited in that space to navigate animated or really creative um, context. So I think it's also important to bring in what we call um, the practices in co-design environments wherein we have the migrants designing platforms for us, designing contents that particularly highlighting the language and the culture, which I was mentioning earlier. And this is not only a top-bottom approach wherein the government sees this and then this is the impact. And that happened during the pandemic. The government was distributing information on you know, how to address coronavirus in the pandemic with the health information. But people do not understand that because it wasn't in the language of the people. It wasn't in the culture of that certain group. And that's creating a cultural divide, not only with the digital, but also that cultural. So we bring in those practices, those insights into that space. And then we start to unpack and question, really, what is digital divide and how can we really redress that through policy intervention and research? Amazing. Thank you so much. This was Amanda Linkar and you heard Irvin Cabalquinto and Miria Giorgio, who spoke about the ways in which media are shaping migration from a holistic perspective, as well as the importance of more situated analysis to comprehend the everyday life of migrants and their digital practices. Thank you for listening.